Hello, and welcome to the M&M podcast, episode number four. Four. Oof. I'm Michael Gallagher. I'm Miles Blanning. And we're coming to you uh, live from uh, the House of Moray, the Moray House School of Education and Sport. Sport. We just changed our name, yeah. So we're the School of Education and Sport. And I'm on the se- we're on the second floor of uh, Simon Laurie House, which coincidentally is also the fourth floor of St. John's Land, which is the home of the Center for Research and Digital Education. How many houses and lands does one building actually need? Yes, it's kind correct. of like a bit greedy. It is correct. It's a we just a plague on both your houses. We'll just go Shakespearean there. <laughs> <laughs> I just, I just work in Argyle House. That's yeah. it. One uh, house. That's, that's it. That Argyle House. We oh, that's right. You come from uh, another building that's referred to as a house. We have St. John's Land. We have Simon Laurie House. We have Maury House, etc. Oh, it's ridiculous. It's happening. It's ridiculous. It's happening here in Hollywood. So again, for episode four, we'll be exploring uh, again in our continuing exploration of all things. Automation and emerging technologies in the educational space. We'll be focusing a little bit on, again, AI uh, and bots and automated agents and these sorts of things. And for this, we'll be picking up on some of the themes from the previous episode where we talked about the imaginaries of ed tech and how they're looking for uh, presenting these technologies as measures of efficiency or instrumental education or improving a very predefined bit of work in teaching. And we're going to be using our own. So I think imaginaries, we should say, are powerful. They're not limited to ed tech. They can be used from our side as well. And we do, in higher education, have our own imaginaries about um, about what good teaching is and about what the student experience is and about what the ethos of higher education is. All of these things uh, we used uh, ourselves. So imaginaries are powerful. In this episode, we'll be exploring a little bit of utopia, and dystopia. 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 So these are powerful things, particularly with these technologies. So we want to explore a little bit what we mean there and how they can be constructed and conceived and what effect that has on our imagination. So uh, some of these methods, I think, are borrowed or adapted or uh, just straight up plagiarized from uh, the Near Future Teaching Project, which Sean Bain and I worked on as well. Uh, Again, we can use them to shape our responses to emerging technologies that would be difficult to respond to otherwise. I think often uh, with these technologies, it's difficult for people to respond to them because they may or may not lack the conceptual structures or the vocabulary to have this discussion about AI, so it's important to give them. What is it? What, that's it. It's the kind of, what does it mean? What does it mean? What's it te- what? Show me something. That's right. What is it? And then you might, oh, yeah, I kind of understand that. So it's, it's breaking it down to that kind of... that. A basic level, which I really like. That's correct. Because people can talk to you about this all day long. You're like, what? That's correct. So that's right. So from our side, from, again, this is why the partnership between faculty and tech are so is so critical. Like what Miles and I represent here in our roles at the institutions really is important because, A, it gives me a capacity to understand and talk about what AI is and what this technology actually does. Mm-hmm. And Maybe for Miles, it gives him an opportunity to understand what we rant on about. We're always talking about pedagogy or yeah. assemblage. Ped- pedagogy is like what, and the, it, but it is. It, it's that kind of. It has to be that combination. That's right. To better improve things, to, to help with that, to to make the technology not this kind of bubble of, yeah, here's this thing that you'll have to try and use. That's correct. It's just like well, it's I think we're expanding the teacher function here in this podcast. Really, <gasps> really, that's what we're doing, right? Oh my God, All right. 
We're, we're on fire. That's kind of scary. <laughs> Alrighty. All right. So let's let's jump right into the utopian. Okay. So if, if we're working with the idea that AI has some bearing on what we do here as a university, what could conceivably be the hallmarks of that utopian vision? So, and I think it's it's AI, it's any kind of upcoming technology. Like we said, like, um, you know, whether it's adaptive learning, learning analytics, big data, artificial intelligence and, and, and utopian it's just it's trying to give people something that they can maybe understand and um, we'll, we'll go into dystopia as well later on but I've written down something that I think it's kind of you know something where AI complements the user journey expanding the teacher reach function whilst allowing users to opt in and own their own data um, an omni-channel AI that supplements if and when required and is involving with the user decisions and innovations Bespoke but standardized to help the learner have the best opportunities for getting knowledge and or recognized qualification experience. And I think it's, it's you know, it's, it's the way I can envisage this utopian uh, adoption of this, these kind of technologies is to, to supplement, to aid, to help, and not to kind of, which we'll talk about slightly later on, is to, to push, to shove, to, you know, cause distress. That's correct. Um, Usurp. I, even to remove the teacher altogether. Yeah, yeah. well, that's it. And, and it's realizing that it's supplemental. The academic's still core. Mm. The experience is still core. And, and, and what this what these technologies should do is to try and help. In the end, I think the goal, correct me if I'm wrong, is, is someone who comes along to this, this institution is to try and uh, get them to qualify with something and leave the institution, do you know what I mean? Get a qualification. Mm. Um, and for them to learn and to gain knowledge. Mm. And then for them to go out in the local community and improve that community as well and, and themselves. So, and in a way, we should probably consider the technologies to help and aid that um, and not replace any of those kind of aspects or not replace anybody in those, not for, and we'll talk about still being a reason, it's not there to say, we want you for retention purposes. Yes. Because there might be an underlying thing about... You know, retention equals cost, yes, um, or efficiency purposes as well. You know, efficiency might be, and I'm thinking about utopian as well. So it's not just for the student, but for the academic. They're at the core, but you know, efficiencies could be helping them not ha- answer the same questions about assessment deadlines fifty times within discussion board. That's correct. Um, so there's, there's, I think it's beneficial for everybody, and that yeah, that utopian thing is about you know data efficacy as well. Um. And um, I think the opt-in thing as well, it's kind of core to say whether people want to opt into it and use it yes. um, and whether they want to, and they can configure it as they require. That's correct. Um, I think supplemental is the key thing for me. It's, you know, I think I think if you watch something like, um, if you think about it being used where people don't want it or shoving them or, or kind of conspiring against them or using data that maybe the user didn't want which is kind of dystopian which we'll talk about in a second that's the negative thing about it we yeah. want to try and improve that experience i agree i agree and i think there's some 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 points there that i can pick up on uh as well it's bespoke i agree with that i would have no option with that i think uh, ultimately opt-in should probably be the default position for any tech project ever and for the rest of time well we say that yeah but, but we but don't <laughs> we say that but we say that but we make that mistake again and we, and we say we i mean i think we we're talking referring to the larger yeah higher education space here we oh. talk about this all the time but this idea of opting in and opting out uh the default position is means you have to opt in to participate not opt out 
to participate and in. You, and, and, the, and if you do opt in, you own what aspects of it That's you correct. opt in about. So there's a whole data ownership thing that we'll pick up again yeah, yeah. Uh, as well, because it's a really critical piece of this discussion. Uh, for me, in terms of the utopia, just to build on what Miles was talking about, some of the hallmarks of a utopian vision of AI would be uh, this idea of expanding the teacher function. So I think a lot of this involves how do we improve the teacher function? Uh, so there are potential, there is some potential there for some instrumental uh, approaches that uh, we should be cautious of, but we should still recognize the pragmatic gains from the idea that I might not have to answer that question uh, directly a million times mm -hmm. uh, in one in one setting. Uh, but recognize that there are functions out with the current educational uh, teacher uh, I, the idea of the teacher that we can explore as well. How do we move into spaces where the teacher hasn't been present largely for logistical reasons or time constraints or what have you? So how does it free up the teacher to move into new spaces that they may or may not have been in? That's something you have to tread very cautiously on because there might be spaces that uh, the student or the, or the teacher function shouldn't move into, mm. but we can explore that a little bit more as we go. So it's the idea of expanding the teacher function. And I'd actually advance what sounds a very counterintuitive bit of what I think a utopian vision here would yeah. be, which is be less tech. Now, this sounds counterintuitive. It's not necessarily more tech. It's a more coherent use of existing tech. Or if you're introducing more tech, it makes the experience more, co more coherent. Yeah. And I, and I think that's it. It's not something that should be, you go here to do this, you go there to do that. That's correct. And it's probably thinking about it's, you know, I think there's, 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 there's always conversations that go on about learning management systems. What's the point in them? Mm -hmm. Because all there are is, is you know, f depending how they're used and configured, they can just act as the portal to get access to another tool where information is stored when it's better stored than that tool. So thinking about it, and, and the way I kind of think about this is, um, you know, the, the actual practical use of this is saying, okay, you wake up in the morning and, you know, you can, you can access this application, okay? And this virtual assistant, digital assistant, educational assistant thing is all in one, okay? And you can see your, your timetable for the day. You can click on your timetable. You can see what's going on for the day. You click on what the subject is. You can see whether that is being recorded. You can vote whether you want that session recorded or not. And then you can see the subject discussions are happening off that as well uh, within this one interface. And then maybe you can do, you know, you can, you can ask certain questions and get certain stimulations about that topic as well. And then maybe you can connect with other people that are discussing that out with the course around the world that are subject matter experts or something like that. That is, that's grand. And then for the academic as well, you know, thinking about the ease of use of it as well, it's kind of key to say, oh, whatever we, whatever, whatever's built has to be easy to, to use. And it won't be, you know, the, the IT, Central IS could build something and say, there you go. And then it's not intuitive for anybody else to use. And you're like, you want the academics to own it. That's right. Or a part of it. That's right. So it has to be something that's easy. That's correct. And I don't, yeah, just this idea of less tech and what I mean by that largely is what you're talking about. It's just a more coherent yeah. use of the technology. And I think what your use case there actually presents a really interesting thing. And if we get pushback, um, uh, I don't want to say pushback, actually. It's more just, uh, you know, uh, rebuttal or critique to the, the approaches we're using here. Mm -hmm. A lot of that has to do, I have had some conversations with faculty here at the university around, is the goal of this to make the learning easier to spoon? Uh, I think often you hear the term spoon, spoon feeding feeds. or these types of things. 
And I think it raises a really interesting distinction here is that what we want to do is to maintain rigor, in mm -hmm. fact, probably increase that rigor, mm -hmm. uh, at the same time ensuring that the failure that's taking place at the university is not due to tacit understanding of opaque university practices, whether it's administrative or otherwise. Mm -hmm. You want to ensure that the learning, the challenge is taking place in the learning and not necessarily in the experience of being a student at the University of Edinburgh. There's an important distinction there, too. I think yeah. sometimes we talk about rigor, and somehow we associate that with administrative practice somehow. That's not supposed to be where the rigor takes place. That's supposed to be a very predictable, ultimately a very seamless journey through the university experience. And often, I think you're seeing a lot of disengagement from students, or you're seeing a lot of retention issues exist often in these areas that have nothing to do with the learning taking place. So I think when we're talking about AI, we should make that distinction yeah. that if it can service one of those roles without converting the learning into a spoon-fed uh, yeah. transmission model of education, I think that's a positive thing. Yeah, I think that's... Um, so it's just thinking there is like, you know, I can imagine being a student here is like spinning 10 plates and maybe one plate is actually your learning you're teaching stuff that's going on and the nine other plates are you know life and uh whatnot but also a couple of those plates would be all the university craziness that goes on about accessing this doing this making sure this is there and you know like uh, university has so many core systems that's right and you know the student experience project has discovered that people weren't happy about the numbers core number of core systems that we have and how to inter interact with them you know the utopian vision would be that they don't have to spin that plate. That's right. It's and all this, in one experience. I would agree. And that student, uh, what was it called? I'm sorry, you referred to the student survey? or a Service Excellence Program. Service Excellence yeah, Program. Yeah, yeah. So I think that's sort of supported by the student satisfaction surveys as well. Yeah. It's this idea, and I think if you think in the in the prism of, uh, you think in the mindset, I should say, of, of what the student contact with the university is. So mm. if it, particularly if you're an online student, this becomes a little bit more diffuse. But this idea that essentially the sum total of your university experience is dictated by your relationships with your cohort, the students mm -hmm. in your in your course or your program, yeah. and your contact with your instruction, your, your faculty, and on some level your contact with uh, your personal tutor or, or some sort of tutoring tutorial type of system. So yeah. ultimately your contact points for the entire university experience become that. The abstractions are the contact points with administrative functions, you know, mm -hmm. this... Uh, you, you receive emails from the registrar or from or from the bursary or these ideas that you get emails uh, from everywhere. You get emails from around, and they're all very diffuse, and they all lead to a, a rather uh, incoherent. They can be an incoherent kind of university experience. So, long story short, is ultimately that in the my utopian vision, mm -hmm. all of that is cohered, and so the student journey becomes a predictable one, a challenging one in terms of what goes on in the learning. Yeah, but a predictable one. And if AI can assist in that, I'm pretty happy with that. Another point I think is going to be the subject of another podcast, but we're not going to talk about today, <laughs> is this idea that with uh, that whatever AI is or whatever digital, quote-unquote, digital education is, any sort yeah. of uh, in, uh, education that's supported by technology, yeah. uh, has to be ecologically friendly. And I think we're going to start exploring that at some point. Start thinking about the carbon impact of what we do in this space. Because mm. I think that's going to become increasingly important. So I think in the utopian vision, 
it has a relatively carbon neutral yeah. impact. And yeah. I'm wondering if we can have a conversation at some point around maybe we can have a guest speaker on or what have you. And we'll talk about these issues around uh, uh, the environmental impact of what we're doing as well. Yeah, I, yeah, I yeah. think it's important. Yeah. And I agree with you about the opt-in thing. That's a critical bit. I think also uh, how how does it how does it engender uh, inclusivity uh, is important as well because technology of this sort tends to amplify existing bias rather than diminish. So uh, existing a disadvantage for particular groups uh, in higher education. I think how do we go about doing that? Uh, how do we ensure that inclusivity is part of this equation? Because those are values that are consistent with what yeah, we're doing. Yeah, completely. So that is more the utopian vision. Yeah. The dystopian vision, I think, is a little bit more easy for uh, a little bit easier for people to <laughs> to jump on. So why don't we walk through that a bit? Yeah. So so the bit I've written is uh, AI has been incorporated with little or no community engagement. It's an external tool integrated with numerous sources, and data is shared. Um, so what I mean by that is it can be shared across internal tools and external tools as well. Okay, so it can be actually like maybe harvesting information from your social media profiles, mm. which is yeah, uh, inaccessible tools that exclude users or contains bias towards certain groups, uh, which is talked about. Provide users with inaccurate information and isn't localized or managed, so it's not personalized as well. I'll say. Um, used by an institution to replace human contact and used for an institutional purpose that isn't beneficial to a student. Mm. And so, kind of saying there, it's just bums on seats, it's money. Yes. Okay. Um, stack them high and sell them cheap. Stack them high, sell them cheap, and there's no impact, you know, there's no benefit to the wider community for, yeah. for that as well, okay? Uh, provides support, however, in, in isolation and doesn't allow the user to apply knowledge. Interesting. So, yeah, that is... Uh, it's pretty horrible. It's horrible. Uh, and I think it's probably pr consistent with what I think people's fears are around this. Oh, technology. big time. And uh, I, I don't think that's, you know, utopian was actually harder to write. Utopia was harder to write. Utopian is harder to write. Because it is. It, it's, it's trying to I'll think about that experience for all the audiences and how, how a good one's going to be. And that's tricky to imagine. Dystopia is dead easy. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? There's, I no, agree. there's no teachers. There's no teachers. Students, uh, nobody cares about their experience. Nobody's yes. asking them anything. That's correct. Uh, we're harvesting their data, and we're doing what the hell we want with it. Yeah, it's pretty. It's pretty grim, and um, and I don't think it's necessarily uh, science fiction either. I think this, without careful consideration, that could easily play out, and it has. Like, at least parts of this have played out in certain environments, in certain locales, and I think. Part of this is, uh, we're going back to the edtech narratives and the edtech uh, imaginaries of all this thing. And part of this is being presented, and, and uh, Sean Bain here in the center, she does a presentation where she talks about these imaginaries, how edtech is positioning this. And there's a, a famous one five years from now, and there's this IBM infographic about the classroom will learn you. And <laughs> so if you look through all the language on this infographic, uh, it's just basically, as, as she said, she's, it's basically swapped out the teacher for the classroom. So it becomes this d impersonal sort of uh, sort of uh, personalized AI driven kind of environment. Yeah. And there's another one too talking about the smart campus, the quote unquote smart campus and this rise of IoT technology. Yeah. And it was this idea and this is actually presented um, I hate to draw them into a critique but but why not? Mm -hmm. JISC. It was this idea that presented this potential imaginary. I'm not 100% sure how how uh, programmatic this has become in their thinking. Yeah. It was this idea 
of a smart campus with facial recognition technology oh, wow. to track attendance and behavior and presumably disengagement with the learning and, and all of these different things. And literally on the infographic uh, or on this, uh, this, web, this webpage around this, yeah. there was mention of that this data would then feed into the home office or would feed into financial services to track loans and, and linking attendance to loans and linking attendance to uh, visas, visas for international students, etc. Kind of so, yeah. so perhaps unintentionally or otherwise, they presented a particularly dystopian vision about what we're talking about here. And we're clearly not talking about facial recognition technology. Uh, do you know what? I think it's kind of funny. You know, I just watched, I just finished watching The Capture on BBC, which is all about um, basically being able to edit CCTV and um, uh, use data to portray things that didn't actually happen, but sharing that information with certain resources. And it's interesting, it's, it's all kind of like, it sounds great in practice, but it's just like, well, that's just wrong. That's right. It's just wrong. It's just wrong. <laughs> it's just kind of crazy. It's like, what do, do I, as the owner of my data, have any say in this at all? Yes. You know, it, if I'm walking on a smart campus, do I say, well, you can't use my face? Yes. I don't want you taking a picture of my face. I'm storing it somewhere. And I think that's a critical part of this discussion is why these imaginaries are so important, right? Why these narratives of use are so important. You can advance a value-led uh, uh, vision of what this could be yeah. consistent with what we believe to be the values uh, at work or the ethos at work at the University of Edinburgh. We can yeah. do that. Yeah. We have that. We have agency in this process. Yeah. But you have, to, in some ways... I would actually argue, put the cart before the horse in that you're advancing the vision before the technological reality becomes true, which is why this kind of futures approach, this futures thinking approaches are very important, yeah. is that we're advancing a vision that may or may not be technologically true yet. Yeah. Because what we're doing in the reality of it, in the lived experience of what you're describing, mm -hmm. is, is often horrific, uh, for lack of a better word. And I think a lot of that pivots around the data. So maybe we should just quickly transition yeah, to that. Yeah, yeah. So what are the complications around this data? Oh, like data, the comp even now, like data is, like we have to be careful with data. And data is, is up for us, the data controls to look after, okay? So we have, at, so users will log in and we'll have data for them. And as data controllers, we can't share that data. We've got to make sure that, that data meets uh, data accessibility, uh, data um, GDPR and other data uh, uh, restrictions in place from UK and European law. And we've got to make sure we're ethical with our data as well and transparent with it. So we, we've got to say to users, yeah, we collect this data. Here's what we do with it. Here's, here's how it's stored. Here's how it's secured and things like that. So we have this data and it's up to us to see whether we want to use it or, or not as well. So um, for something like a, you know, how can we use this data? So for, you know, um, learning analytics, for looking at the data, and, and it, it's kind of scary to think how, if you give like a massive set of data and you have no question, you start looking at it, you'll probably create answers of things that don't really exist. You might look at small subsets of things and say, well, this is it for everybody. And you're like, well, that's not true because you've not looked at the bigger picture. Um, so it's kind of like the big data thing is, is, is fascinating right now. Um, and it's, you know, where do we kind of stop gathering that data? Where is it useful? Where is it not useful? Like, people are obsessed with um, attendance data. And that, and that depicts things as well. You know, we need to have attendance data. So what is attendance data? It's physically, people physically coming on campus. And you're like, oh, well, say people actually watch a lecture being streamed online. 
oh, you can't stream lectures online because of this impact and all that kind of stuff. Um, but people love having uh, attendance data now, which is shared for tier four visas and all that kind of stuff as well, interestingly, by certain colleges. Um, but yeah, it's we have to be very careful about how we use the data and how we collect it. And um, we are, let's say, we are data controllers. We have to make sure that we meet all legislation around that. But that's legislation. There's nothing to say ethically. <laughs> That's right. We can't go around and do this and that and use that data to, you know, provide information that could be very worded wrongly or That's correct. nudge people in certain directions yeah. or shape things. That's correct. And maybe I should, yeah, pull from, yeah again, I'm going to return, like I did in the last episode, I'm going to return real quickly to Selwyn's book, Should uh, Robots Replace Teachers? It just came out in 2019 over the summer. And uh, it's this idea of behavioral change and so how the data can be used to make decisions about a nudge for example, or a poke or this kind of gentle, quote unquote, gentle kind of push in a particular behavioral kind of direction. Uh, having one's instincts shaped and nudge can be a depowering, and I'm never going to be able to say this word, say it. infantilizing, well done. making an infant, uh, experience for some people, preventing them from thinking for themselves. So ultimately, is what we're doing with this data empowering or disempowering? But that's important side note, and we'll explore that a little bit more. But I think the data conversation is critical here, and I don't think it's an easy answer to it. Is there a tension between empowering and disempowering with this data? Is there an attention here between control and a lack of control? That's an important question, I think. So what control does the individual have over that data? What control do we have over that data? Yeah, and that's it. And so how do we expose, how do we make that transparent to people? Well, that's, you, you can say, so, <clears throat> you know, opting in, I opt in for my data to be used. Yeah. Um, and I think that's absolutely grand. So supplying your information saying, yeah, I, I'll opt in for, it's, it, you know, it's like the email thing, I'll opt in for emails, that's grand. So for data, you can say, I'll opt in to be used for this, my data will be used this way, and that'll be fine, and it, and it is used. But it's, thinking about this at a later stage, it's how things are, you know, the, the, the transformation of, of multiple data sets into one thing to predict, like it's learning analytics all over again, prediction right. and retention, right. about saying we're going to predict the way you are, so we'll supply some information. How that information is worded, the text around that, the context around why we're saying to somebody, okay, I think I read like a, an article about um, a mom of three kids and one, one of her kids is ill, and she had three nudges based on the data. The data's been programmed to say if someone's not accessed the VLE probably, then give them a nudge, three nudges, and she was like, well, do you know what? It's not worth the stress right now. I'll drop out. Mm. It's a nudge, a nudge to shove. A nudge to shove to invisibility. That's it. So they just removed from the system. That's it. It and caused it, the disengagement, not necessarily contributed to re-engaging. No, and, but what, what, el what is there to say? Can't, so, you know, the re-engagement, how, how were those nudges worded? Yeah. What were the points? Why were they, you know, what's the, what's the kind of data points that were created to say this is, at this point, we should say to a user, it's pretty crude to say you're not logged in. Yeah. You say, there you go, you have to get a nudge. Well, maybe they've been shared information externally, or maybe there's other things that we should be contacting the person about. That's right. I think we, I think particularly online, I think if, because uh, I work in an online program, I teach online, most of my work is online, um, is this idea that a lot of the activity taking place that is meaningful educational activity, the real student-driven uh, approaches to education uh, are taking place outside a, a university controlled uh, a social media groups. Pl yeah, platform. Yeah. Uh, so a good deal of my work is taking place on WhatsApp groups that are, are, are not open to me yeah. as their instructors. So, 
So what decisions am I making on the data that would uh, exactly. in, impact that meaningfully? And that's it. And saying, we don't have access to that data that's set. Right. And so I, we're like, well, we're saying, you've not posted in discussion boards. That's right. But I'll tell you what, that person might have posted 20 million times on WhatsApp. That's right. And they've been actually great in there. But we don't have visibility of that. So how can we make a decision on somebody right. saying, oh, by the way, and we can't, like we know from experience that in discussion boards within the current LMSs don't meet requirements. People don't like using them. They like doing things that are, if they're in, if they're in so a certain tools, ease of access to those tools as well. What's yeah. up? It's just a click on the phone. There you go. That's right. To access certain LMSs, you got to log into a portal system. Then you got to go to the click on the course. Then you got to click on a discussion board link, and then you got to find the relevant discussion board. Click on that. And then you got to read everybody's thing if you can understand the way the tree system works. And then you'll post. In WhatsApp, it's a conversation. That's right. It's back and, that, and forth. It's back and forth. And it, it's not something that as a teacher, I feel I deserve to have um, to, to be privy to. I, I don't deserve to be necessarily in those groups. Like, and I don't want to be necessarily yeah, in those but groups. But it'd be like you saying, you guys are in the cafe. I'm just going to sit in the background. That's right. And listen to you. There is an equivalent, yeah, for sure. Even on the physical campus, it's this idea that <laughs> it's kind of creepy. You, you go over there in an informal space, and I'll still listen. But I'm, I'm watching you. Yeah, that's that's a little bit a little bit it's bizarre. It's so weird, isn't it? You know, but there's a there's a bigger question. I want to throw out a challenging question to sort of close us off here. But there's yeah. a there's a bigger question here. Yeah. Um, in terms of how this is anonymized, how the data is anonymized versus how it's it's uh, used in particular contexts. So mm -hmm. this idea that I can have a whole host of data, big data set from all students on campus, whatever. Yeah. And I can anonymize that in a meaningful way. Yes. And I can use that to make uh, a predictive output of some sort that attempts to improve however perceived the student experience or the teaching experience or what have you, or the yeah. teacher function. Yeah. Does, and now presumably that data set will be added to over a course of time with each successive class and yeah, iterative yeah. And iterations of the tool I'm, I'm and all these look, things. I'm going to look back at that and make other predictions. And make that other predictions yeah, and historical... Or uh, current predictions based on historical data, for example. So, mm -hmm. my question to you, and you don't have to have a good answer for oh this, God, is, <laughs> is that does a does a student upon completion of their program here have a right to be forgotten? So yeah, they do. Yeah. Well, and so um, they can. They can say they have the right to be forgotten for certain systems, but we have to keep for the university. They have to keep a record of a student's um, a journey for a certain amount of time, and that varies per school. Because certain programs will have to say, God, what is it? I think it's engineering. They have to keep uh, student data or proof that they've actually studied for a longer period because they can be asked for for up to 10 years or something like that. Yeah. And certain schools is kind of different. But what you'll find is that the retention might be per tool. Yes. And not an institutional wide retention. That's I'm right. not too sure on that. That's a question that we probably I could probably ask somebody to find out because because uh, I think we're very yet again like going back to this kind of AI is it, it's one experience and it connects lots of things. You know, same with other institutions. They're all different tools. That's right. There's not one overarching thing to say by the way. Yeah. And and that's that's the problem because how how are all these data points? How is all the data stored? Where is it stored? Have they all done data protection impact assessments? Do they all GDPR compliant? Well, they should be because they have to be by law. Um, and uh, can they be forgotten? How can they be forgotten? Because you can say, okay, I'll I'll wipe certain um, PII information, personal um, uh, information away from that data set. But that doesn't mean that, you know, we can't, in a discussion post, 
someone enters all their name and stuff like that. That's right. That's very difficult to find. It's difficult to find. That's right. So um, so there are technical difficulties in even executing a right to be forgotten yeah, kind of request. It's tricky. It's so very I, I've seen I've seen a couple of tools that um, can do it, and they'll 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 say that, you know they'll they'll quite happy say to you it will take a while because we've got to review certain things as well. Um, but you can you can do it. Interesting. All, so all, all it is 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 breaking a couple of links. Uh, pen entity is all related as well. God. Interesting. We read a, a can of worms to yeah, close really the session. Kind of worms. Kind of, but I think the data the data conversation will take place over many of these podcasts. I don't think we can escape it, and I think there's there's parameters to the data that raise all sorts of ethical concerns, but technological ones as well. So it's how these things are constructed in meaningful ways, and if it, it is it even possible to do some of the things that we purport to do. How does the ethics and our ideas of what we do as a university meeting up with the technological demands and how do we resolve those all those issues. So it would be the subject of many more oh God. podcasts. I think, it, yeah, and it's, it's bringing in experts to say That's right. within an institution who are like the data czars and That's right. all that kind of stuff within mass systems to say what what happens. Because it is, because the, the record is we have to have proof that they've studied here. That's right. And that has to be kept for a certain amount of time. That's correct. So there are obligations there and the responsibilities, and there's an ethical position as well. How do yeah. we resolve all those different things? Yeah. So I think that's a good close for, for today, yep. podcast number four. And uh, we thank you for joining us. This, again, is Michael Gallagher. And Miles Blanning. And we look forward to speaking with you next time.